0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: hope that for for all those people for whom wolf hall remains um, on their bedside table uh, this this might offer a, a, an incentive to pick the books up and 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 read them in earnest
4: that was peter kuzminski discussing the new bbc adaptation of wolf hall and bring up the bodies
1: nation took a long time to stagger into rebellion but eventually it did and when it did um, it became seriously
4: territorial. And that was David Crouch Mm. on England's bloody 12th century civil war. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine available from all good news agents or via subscription check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of January 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Tudor history lovers will no doubt be glued to their television screens this month, as the eagerly awaited adaptation of Hilary Mantel's Booker Prize winning novels Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies is due to begin on BBC Two. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, was lucky enough to interview the series director, Peter Kazminsky. to find out what viewers can expect from the show, and what he really thinks about its lead character, Thomas Cromwell.
0: So, Peter, what I'd like to know first is what actually drew you to the project. Are you a history buff yourself?
3: Well, I must I was a science student originally uh, at university, so I haven't really got any history credentials in the academic sense. Although I've always been interested in history, um, and um, I suppose taken a a fairly cautious view about um, historical novels, uh, wondering occasionally whether the people who've written them have been a bit cavalier with the historical research, Uh, because I tend to work on factual programs in the main or dramas based on factual events, and we put a great deal of emphasis on our research process. Uh, I have been cautious, um, just as as a reader myself, about historical novels, but of course Hilary Mantel spent five years researching uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies and um, when I read them, you know, it was uh, the the strength and the um, depth of her research was immediately apparent, so I was already a fan of the books Um, and, you know, it's it's not often in one's uh, professional life that you get offered an opportunity to make a television programme based on two Booker Prize-winning novels. Uh, so it's not something uh, one would, would turn down, really.
0: No. I mean, the series sort of distils sort of a thousand pages, doesn't it, into only six hours of, of film. I mean, that must have been a huge challenge.
3: Well, I think if Wolf Hall is successful, and, and of course that's very much in the lap of the gods at the moment, it will be because of the extraordinary achievement of Peter Strawn, the screenwriter, who, as, as you rightly say, has taken just about 1,000 pages of pretty dense prose and turned it uh, in an extraordinarily compelling and coherent way into um, six hours, six episodes of, of television script, you know, obviously, when one hears of um, of of an, a process of abridgment that that is that dramatic, you assume that huge chunks of material are going to have to be discarded. And knowing the books pretty well, what was astonishing to me was that when I got to the end of of the first drafts of the six scripts, which I have to say, just as as pieces of writing, were the best scripts I'd ever read. Um, I was astonished that that I didn't really feel as if a great deal had been left out now of course, when you you lift the hood and and start to look at the mechanics of of what Peter's done and I do a bit of writing myself, so I was curious. it's incredibly clever the way he's managed to keep the coherence of the story, keep that sense of being inside Cromwell's interior world with such a a restricted time canvas.
0: Mm. And of course so much of the books happen in inside the characters' own heads, it's their thoughts. Um, I mean how do you translate that into, into onto the screen?
3: Well of course historically that's been done with voiceover uh, but we're, we, we've sort of uh, as a medium we've rather turned our faces against voiceover these days. Um, if you think of the job that John Mortimer did on um, the Evelyn Waugh novel *Brideshead Revisited*, which, you know, in, in my memory was was one of the high points of television drama. Uh, there was a great deal of voiceover from the Charles Ryder character, but um, we we do a lot less of that now. And Peter Straw made a decision, I think rightly, not to use voiceover in *Wolf Hall*. So, as you imply, we were faced with an interesting challenge. You know, a good deal of Wolf Hall, although written in the third person, is very much within the mind of the central character, Thomas Cromwell. We've tried to address that in two ways, really. First of all, in the shooting style, by which I mean that the camera follows Cromwell around. It, it virtually sits on his shoulder it tends to be shot in a, a point of view and a reaction style. So we see what Cromwell sees and then we come back onto his face to see his reaction to what he's seeing. So in that sense of film grammar, we try to help the audience to feel that they are viewing events through Cromwell's eyes. And the other, the other way is to, is to um, punctuate the various episodes with scenes of memory, in some cases, scenes of fantasy, all, all events that are there in the books, uh, but which help us to identify Cromwell not just as the main character, but our point of view character.
0: And, and what is actually your impression of Thomas Cromwell? I mean, how do you think he'll come across to, to your audience?
3: Well, when I first started on this project, I, I was lucky enough to, to be able to spend quite a bit of time with Hilary Mantel and she's been really generous in sharing her research and her conclusions and her opinions, in particular about character, right from the start, which helped me a great deal, incidentally, in the casting of, of the, of the programmes. And one of the things that Hilary said to me early on um, was, with Cromwell, what you see is absolutely not what you get. Now... I think I know what she meant by that, which is that the interior and the exterior are very different. Um, here's a man who has an almost chameleon-like ability to present different exterior personas depending upon the situation. Uh, he changes his colors in that sense um, to suit uh, the surroundings. But inside is a darker, um, very a very complex human being. And Thinking about what his driving motivation is through this span of story uh, is one of the uh, subjects that Mark Rylance, who plays the character, and I spent a good deal of time in rehearsal and before and afterwards um, discussing. The other thing to say about Cromwell, uh, and this is another central aspect of Wolf Hall, is that he's a pragmatist. He learns this from his surrogate father, Cardinal Wolsey, who was also a great pragmatist. And Wolf Hall sees Cromwell, the arch-pragmatist, faced against Sir Thomas More, who is presented in, in Hilary Mantell's interpretation as a man driven entirely by principle, uh, who is unbending um, in his adherence to his own principles to the point where he will, he will willingly walk to his death and leave his... Family bereft, uh, rather than bend on principle. Uh, now that is a is a very dramatic, interesting, and way of dramatizing it, uh, the the religious debate that was taking place in England at this point. And it, Hillary has chosen to dramatize it in the uh, debates uh, that come to their climax in episode four of our serial between Moore and Cromwell.
0: And the relationship between Anne Boleyn and Cromwell is, is actually really as important as that of Henry VIII and Anne. Um, do you, will your audience get that um, impression, do you think, from, from the series?
3: Very much so. Uh, in fact, I would say that if you think that our story, which, as I say, encompasses Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, begins uh, fairly adjacent to the first time Cromwell meets Anne Boleyn, and ends with Anne Boleyn's death, you can see that the, the arc of the relationship, the ebb and flow of the relationship between Cromwell and Anne Boleyn is, is, is really the, the central spine of our story.
0: Mm. And of course, Henry himself is, is, a, is a quite a complex character in history. Um, that must have also been quite hard to get that across because I suppose people had this view of Henry as his, sort of, uh, in his later years perhaps, Um that this is Henry at a younger age. How, how has that, that come across?
3: Well, I should say that the interpretation of character that we that we employ is absolutely Hilary Mantel's interpretation. It, it, you know, it, it won't surprise anyone who knows the books to, to hear me say that Wolf Hall is, is revisionist history. You know, Hilary has chosen to take somebody who has who's generally been regarded in history as a villain, Thomas Cromwell, and pit him against somebody who has generally in history been regarded as a saint, um, Sir Thomas More, and and appear to put right on Cromwell's side. Uh, And in the same way, her interpretation of Henry is, at least in, in my contention, revisionist, in the sense that she reminds us that Henry, in his younger years, before his his jousting accident and his huge swelling in size um was an extraordinary figure the archetypal renaissance man really he was um as well as being a, a hugely accomplished sportsman and athlete he was a musician uh, he was an architect uh, he designed clothes you know he who was a highly intelligent and above all extremely charismatic figure and the challenge we faced was to try to uh, bring that character to life as conceived by Hillary and not get bogged down in the previous interpretations uh, which you know which are sometimes veered a little bit more towards caricature.
0: Mm. When you first read the, the script, did, um, did you have people in mind for um, the cast? Did people sort of jump out at you and you think, oh, that, that person, you know, Mark, for example, for Cromwell?
3: Well, Mark Rylance and I have worked together previously uh, on um, a Channel 4 drama called The Government Inspector, where Mark played the weapons inspector, Dr. David Kelly, who committed suicide uh, at around the time of the Iraq War. And so we had been eager to work together again. And Mark was attached to Wolf Hall, uh, when I became involved. So from my point of view, it was, it, it was something I'd been looking to do for years, find a, another really meaty project for Mark. Uh, but in this, on this occasion, he got there before me. He was approached by the producers, agreed to play the role and, um, I would imagine you know he had some involvement in in the choice of of me as director. And I did in fact because this was such an ambitious piece and the characters were so well drawn and I knew I needed really accomplished actors. I turned to two other actors that I have worked with previously, Damien Lewis uh, who I worked with on a, on the BBC drama Warriors about um the the Cheshire's uh, and their peacekeeping role in, in Bosnia. Uh, I, I asked Damien Lewis if he would like to play Henry VIII, and uh, Claire Foy, with whom I more recently worked uh, on on the Channel 4 drama The Promise, to play Anne Boleyn. And, and for Claire, it was a particular challenge because Anne is depicted in, in Peter Strawn's scripts as quite an unlikable character for much of the drama. And yet, by the end, by episode six, she has to absolutely break your heart and Cromwell's heart. And so, to find an actor who could who could not pull the punches of the earlier, more difficult sections, and yet still deliver that emotional climax for us at the end of the serial was going was always going to be a challenge. And um, I knew that Claire, because we she played a lead for me before i knew that she'd be able to accomplish that
0: mm. i mean and also the number of characters you've had to cast is, is quite large as well isn't it? something like a hundred um i mean where do you start with that sort of number of people
3: well you start with a really good casting director and i was lucky enough to work with i suppose arguably the leading casting directing team in the country nina gold and robert stern um and they went about it very um, systematically. We we had many months spent in casting because I tend to be quite exhaustive about the process. And for most of the parts, we saw a large number of candidates put them on tape, had them auditioning various scenes from Peter's scripts, and and just worked our way towards the process over many months in a, in a small and rather airless room. <laughs>
0: um, and... The um, the play of Wolf Hall, um, which is currently uh, sort of taking place in London, um, has that influenced you at all?
3: Well, as a matter of fact, I made a point of not going to see it uh, until we'd finished shooting, primarily because I didn't want to risk being influenced by it. Uh, Now I knew that Hilary Mantel had been very involved in in the stage version, uh, and it was very very close to her heart. So. You know, I had to explain to her why I didn't go to see it. I didn't want to offend her. Uh, also, Ben Miles, who's playing uh, Cromwell on stage, is an actor I've worked with three times previously on film. And I, I think of him as a friend. So I, I also had to make my excuses to him. But I was concerned that if I went to see the play, something or the plays, something subconsciously might lodge. I, I have been to see... Um, the stage version of Wolf Hall, since shooting, and I I did enjoy it, but it it takes a completely different approach to the material from from Peter Strawn's uh, screen adaptation. So I think for for lovers of the book who've seen the stage version, they'll find this a a very different, and, and I hope, obviously, an illuminating experience.
0: Mm. I mean that brings me on to my next question. Actually, Mantel's um, books have been read by millions of people. What's what do you think you can bring extra um, to to the story um, that they won't maybe have got from the books?
3: Let there not be any doubt. That watching the television serial is um, is no substitute for reading the books. You know, these are some of the finest books. Um, you know, written recently, and uh, to read them is an absolute joy and a pleasure. So I hope that nobody would 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 come to the the television program as an excuse for not reading the books. But having said that it it became almost a joke um the number of times in in preparing Wolf Hall that people said to me and others, Oh yeah, no, that book's it's been on my um, bedside table, but I don't know. It's on the it's in the pile. Or occasionally, people say, "Oh well, you know, I did try, but I didn't really get far past the first hundred pages." And you know, the, the books are challenging. There's no question. They, you know, they they are um, the amb- ambitious pieces of writing which come off magnificently, but they're not exactly an, a sort of easy read. Uh, at least until you get well into them. So. I hope that for, for all those people for whom Wolf Hall remains um, on their bedside table, uh, this, this might offer a, a, an incentive to pick the books up and, and, and read them in earnest.
0: It must have felt quite special filming at, at sites that had a direct link with some of the characters that you're, you're bringing to life.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think for the actors as well, you know, for example, for Damien Lewis and Claire Foy playing Henry and Anne Boleyn to stand in the gallery at Penshurst Place, knowing that um, 500 years previously, their prototype characters had stood in that very room, you know, must have been an extraordinary experience. Uh, I mean, there were, <laughs> there were sacrifices we had to make to allow us to do that. I mean, I have been making television programs for 35 years. I've never, ever known a situation where you're shooting, um, rather an important drama scene in a room and you have to stop every half an hour for 10 minutes to allow a tour party to walk through your set (laughs) from our point of view, uh, you know, that it was, it, it added to the atmosphere hugely that we were in some of the real spaces but to counter that, there were certain, um, shall we say, uh, politely compromises we had to make to allow us to, to shoot in those spaces.
4: That was Peter Kazminsky. The six part dramatisation of Wolf Hall is due to begin on Wednesday, the 21st of January at 9pm on BBC Two. And if you'd like to read more about Wolf Hall, then why not check out our January issue? where you'll find a double interview with Wolf Hall author Hilary Mantel and Thomas Cromwell biographer Dermot McCulloch. They're talking about the books, the series, and the Tudor court that inspired them. Also in this month's issue, we explore the closing months of the Second World War from a military and domestic perspective. We find out about Charles II's sex obsession, and we meet a medieval king and knight who mirror the legend of King Arthur and Lancelot you can get hold of our January issue in all good news and digitally. And if you'd like to take out a print subscription and you're in the UK, you can currently take advantage of a special offer whereby you'll get your first five issues for just £1 each. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe to find out more about this deal, which ends on the 28th of January. And if Woolfall whets your appetite for all things Tudor, then you might be interested on our new digital mini-guide which tells the story of this fascinating dynasty through 50 moments that mattered most. It's available now from the BBC History magazine app on both the iPad and iPhone.
3: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
1: And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
4: of a detour. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane.
5: History textbooks are designed for the, quote, supposedly minimal attention spans of today's pupils, a prominent history teacher has said. Writing in the latest issue of TES, Robert Peel, a history teacher at the West London Free School, said today's textbooks rely too heavily on magazine-style, bite-sized chunks of text and deprive students of serious historical storytelling that was prevalent from the 1950s through to the 1970s. Peel wrote, An ongoing issue I have with the key Stage 3 history books is their lack of extended narrative, You would be hard-pushed to find a stretch of more than 200 words that is not broken by a cartoon, a snippet of so-called source material, or a funny fact. What do you think about Peel's statements? Share your views by tweeting us at History Extra or by posting on our Facebook page. In other news, genealogists from the University of Leicester claim actor Benedict Cumberbatch and Richard III are cousins. According to Professor Kevin Schurer the Sherlock star, who is set to play the Plantagenet King on screen later this year, is Richard's third cousin 16 times removed. It is estimated that between 1 million and 17 million people in the UK are connected in some way to Richard, the Telegraph reports. But Professor Shurer said, Cumberbatch is more direct because he is a third cousin. Most other relatives would be much lower order cousins. I think the Queen would be a third cousin several times removed as well. Cumberbatch will play Richard in the upcoming BBC2 drama series The Hollow Crown, King Richard III. Meanwhile, a Second World War veteran who last year absconded from his nursing home to attend the 70th anniversary D-Day commemorations in France has died. Bernard Jordan, a 90-year-old former Navy officer, died peacefully in hospital, according to a statement by the company that runs the Pines Care Home in Hove, East Sussex, where Mr Jordan known as Bernie, lived. Mr Jordan sparked a police search and made global headlines in June last year when he crossed the Channel wearing his war medals under a grey Mac. Asked at the time why he travelled to Normandy, Mr Jordan said, My thoughts were with my mates who had been killed. I was going across to pay my respects. I was a bit off course, but I got there. Amanda Scott, the managing director of Gracewell Healthcare, said... Bernie caught the world's imagination last year when he made his surprise trip to France and brought a huge amount of joy to a lot of people. He will be much missed by everyone here and our thoughts and prayers go out to his wife.
4: Thank you, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place this March. On the 21st and 22nd of the month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. In 1135, the death of King Henry I triggered a vicious civil war in England, as his daughter Matilda and his nephew Stephen fought to secure the crown. To find out more about this bloody conflict, we sent Charlotte Hodgman to visit Wallingford Castle in Oxfordshire, in the company of Professor David Crouch from the University of Hull.
0: Right, so David, we've come to, to Wallingford, we're standing in the, in the castle meadows, um, and we were going to have a chat about um, the period of Stephen Matilda, the sort of power struggles for the, for the throne. When did this all sort of start?
1: Well, succession was always a, a flashpoint in any... Uh, medieval mm. nations history and um in england particularly in fact england was notorious for the fact that it actually had no succession customs you know <laughs> whoever i mean the the person who got the throne was generally the person who made the most of the opportunity yeah. uh, that, that he had um England had never had an undisputed father-to-son succession since the 10th century. So everybody knew that when the old king died, what would follow would be, well, a gap until the political community or military force sorted out who would be the next one. Mm. I mean, Henry I, the immediate predecessor of, of, of Stephen, he opportunistically uh, took the throne uh, when his brother died in a hunting accident in 1100, um, uh, even though in fact he had an elder brother, Robert, uh, who had a, a claim. Uh, Henry grabbed the throne because he was with his brother's hunting, hunting party and uh, and <laughs> he just rode for London and lassoed a bishop and managed to get himself crowned <laughs> within about four days of his brother's death. Uh, but that, of course, did not stop his elder brother. Uh, Robert Curthose, Duke of Normandy, disputing it and indeed leading an army to England yeah. uh, to a face-off in Alton in Hampshire uh, when they eventually sorted things out amicably. Uh, but it didn't always work out amicably. Of course, the Norman Conquest was yet another succession debate. And really anybody, if they're in a position, could claim the throne. Okay. Henry I, um, when he died... Um, Oh, before he died, actually uh, attempted, as some kings did, to nominate his successor. That, of course, that gave you, gave you a claim. In his case, he only had one legitimate child left to him, which was his daughter, Matilda, who was the previous empress of Germany, but had returned home after her husband's death in 1125. And by 1127, it was quite clear that Henry I was going to have no more children, um, at least by his, uh, by, his legi- by, his, um, by his lawfully wedded wives. Mm. Of course, he had 30 illegitimate (laughs) children uh, which complicated things somewhat as well too but um uh it was quite clear that by 1127 he was going to get have no further children the only other candidate was his elder brother's son william clito who at the time was count of flanders um and therefore to help counter uh, the claims of william clito he nominated his daughter the empress so was that was that
0: unusual then for a king to nominate their daughter as as their heir
1: never happened before in england so, um, so why do
0: you think he went for his daughter over, say, his, like you say, his nephew?
1: Because he hated his nephew.
0: Oh right. <laughs> <What> <laughs> well, one assumes so. he well,
1: was quite a nice chap, actually, by all yeah. accounts, and very, very heroic, and all the rest of it. But, uh, but, but uh, uh, there was bad blood between the two branch, bl- branches of the kingdom. But of course, then his nephew um, solved the problem by getting himself killed uh, in a siege in uh, in Flanders in 1128, which left the way clear for Matilda, or so you would think.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> but
1: of course, Henry the First knew. Very well, the way these things worked, and uh, he tried everything to guarantee his daughter's succession, um, marrying her to, uh, 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 to to the most advantageous uh, foreign match that he could make, which was uh, his his neighbor and rival, the Count of Anjou, who was one of the most powerful uh, princes in the in the center of France. That would have helped assure her chances. Although I think he miscalculated there, because there's one thing you can be sure of uh, in. Uh, Uh, early 12th century France is that Normans hate the Angevins and Angevins (laughs) hate the Normans and in fact he probably may have actually sabotaged her chances partly by that
0: (laughs) yeah she thought that would cross his mind Uh, yeah
1: and of course he got his nobles to do that all important thing swear their uh swear that they would support her when he died and would put her on the throne
0: and did that actually count for anything doing that it certainly counted for something because um in the you
1: know, a civil conflict that followed, and in the debates that followed, the fact that all the great barons and earls of England had sworn to support Matilda was brought forward as the ideological justification for mm. rebelling against the anointed king who was Stephen, because that was trumped by the, by the oath that they'd sworn before. Now, most of the earls and the barons and the Norman counts had not supported mm. Matilda. But still, it was a way of needling them. Yeah. And yeah. indeed, when eventually a lot of them did against Stephen, it was, they said, because they were honouring the oath that they'd sworn before God.
0: So, so Henry dies. Um, does Matilda come back straight away to, to claim the throne?
1: Ah, uh, that was bad timing. Uh, <laughs> Henry died in the middle of a ferocious row with his son-in-law, right. Geoffrey of Anjou. Ah. And, uh his, his his daughter had taken her husband's part. So they were out of Normandy when he suddenly died in the forest of Lyon yeah. in Normandy. Uh, and as a result, opportunity knocked for those people who were ambitious enough uh, to take advantage of the uncertain times. And it is said, well, at least it was said by the people who, who actually didn't honour their oath, that on his deathbed, in his last few days, Henry I, it took him a week to die, okay. Henry I had released his barons and his magnates from their oaths so that they could actually follow their inclinations in the best interests of Normandy. And it's possible that that exact, is exactly what happened, because what we, we know what happened immediately after his, his death, is that the Norman barons, uh, who were also, many of them, English barons too went into conference mode. They okay. had conference after conference. Who's the best person to succeed any of the first? We're not going to have his daughter. Let, let, let's, let's rule her out. We're not going to have that horrible foreign husband of her. Mm-hmm. What will we do? Well, we will um, look around and see who's the best candidate. Now, the king had nephews. And the most potent nephews uh, were the uh, the the sons of his sister, Adela, the Count of Blois, another powerful Central French principality. Not as powerful as Anjou, but powerful enough. Mm. And um, he'd had uh, one of them uh, at his court for years. And that was the younger son, Stephen, who he'd made Count of Montaigne in Normandy, uh, uh, Lord of I in Lancaster in England, uh, and who he'd arranged a marriage to the, to the Countess, the um, heiress of, uh, of Boulogne, um, uh, whose, whose name was Matilda. And the Norman barons thought about it, and they decided, well, and it only took them about two or three weeks to do this, uh, that they would go for Theobald, the eldest son, who was the Count of Blois, because that would bring Normandy and Blois, which, who were neighbouring principalities, into alignment, face down Anjou, and also worry the King of France further up the Seine towards mm-hmm. in Paris. And they elected Theobald as their... Their, their new Duke, Theobald, arrived in Rouen only to discover that his brother had, had gone on a horse, rode to Boulogne, uh, got on a boat, uh, reached England, uh, found his way to London, where the Londoners had claimed him King of England, and where, with the help of his brother, who was the, uh, the, the Bishop of Winchester, and uh, the Bishop of Salisbury, who was the head of the government, uh, got himself crowned.
0: So it just seems so, to be the person who got there first really stood the most chance of, um, of being crowned. As
1: I said, opportunity. Yeah. Stephen started very well. Mm. You know? I mean, he started so well, he didn't have to give anything away. I mean, his uncle, his uncle the dead king, Henry I, had to bribe his way into the, into the good, good books of his aristocracy. He gave away vast amounts of money and land you know, to, to, to get the English aristocracy on his side so he could turn to Normandy and try and sort out things there. Stephen didn't have to do this. I mean, in fact, there are complaints uh, from well known complaints that you know he was he was uh you know uh, as new king, giving away nothing to them, you know nothing at all i mean not well not, not nothing at all, but you know he didn 't feel as though he had to be particularly generous to them, so his first grand court as king at Oxford in Easter eleven thirty six um uh, got through a lot of business, and he made you know quite a few promises about the future running of the kingdom. But he didn't feel as though he had to give away land or money in any great quantities to have himself assured as king, because he felt perfectly confident.
0: So he felt quite he so king. he was quite secure then, even though I mean Matilda sort of lurking in the wings, still making plans or to kind of you know come and assert her claim. She, claim could do nothing.
1: You see, the key the key to England, strangely, was Normandy.
0: Right, and because in- she didn't have that. Um, support there.
1: Without Normandy you could not go on to England uh, and Normandy was secure for king Stephen at this point because his brother Theobald although somewhat miffed having yeah. been sort of, being sort of uh, uh, miffed having been to the throne nonetheless actually rallied round uh, his family and interceded with the king of France and got him to recognize Stephen and indeed letters he and the king of France wrote letters to the pope saying Stephen was the rightful king of England mm. so the pope in Rome sends a, a letter you know. Um, which, uh, to the barons of England, telling them that Stephen indeed is rightfully their king and uh, they needn't worry about the oath that they swore.
0: So what did Stephen do wrong then? it sounds like it was, it was fairly kind of all set up for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> he couldn't have had actually a better start, but he forgot what he should have known, that the key to, uh, the key to England is Normandy. <laughs> well, there were other things as well that he failed to do. But things started well for him. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that he trusted his younger brother Henry the Bishop of Winchester, who was a superb diplomat and engineered all this sort of approval from the, the realm in general, got the ch- support of the Church, the Pope behind him, and you know for the first year of his reign, 1136, 1137, everything went well. But in 1137, he made a massive mistake. He went to Normandy. That wasn't the mistake. That was like, the <laughs> clever thing to do. And yeah. he had been told, go to Normandy, get accepted as duke. Make a great progress through the, through the duchy, have a campaign against the Angevins, teach him who's boss, and after that things will be fine. But somehow things were not fine. Things went wrong in Normandy on that, that great progress. And the, the, the thing that went wrong was that Stephen began trusting certain factions of his aristocracy, the ones that he found most obliging to him, rather than his brother the key to being a good king is to actually keep a balance of factions at your court. Henry mm. I was extremely good at a master. You know, His nephew simply did not get it. He just wanted to be, well, it seems to be he just wanted to be nice to his friends. Yeah. <laughs> he felt safer when he had friends.
0: Yeah. So how did the rebellion pan out? What happened?
1: It was an un- unusual rebellion uh, in the sense that um, it, it, it took a long time to generate it. It took a long, a long time to generate. I mean, don't forget Stephen had been king two years before he had any serious problems in England. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, in the end, you, you can only blame him for it. <laughs> you know, he had so many chances. Yeah. And, 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 and and the nation took a long time to stagger into rebellion. But eventually it did. And when it did, um, it became seriously territorial. In essence, the southwest of England became detached from the rest of England. And, and, and there, you know, Matilda's cause was embraced... Uh, and then the rest of England, South southeast, London, East Anglia, and to a large extent Yorkshire as well, uh, that was loyal to the king. There was a war zone in between them, yeah. Yeah, mostly along the Cotswolds, where terrible things happened. That was more or less the situation for the yeah. entire rest of King Stephen's range. And the war went on. And it continued on, really, uh, until Robert of Gloucester died, in, which he did in 1147. And when he died, the heart was taken out of the resistance, uh, the, out of the, uh, the rebellion. And um, Matilda um, based herself for a while in devises, which became her capital, uh, but could not maintain the struggle. And eventually, she gave up. She resigned her rights to her uh, young son, uh, mm-hmm. or her eldest uh, son, uh, Henry, uh, and left Normandy, where she retired to the palace priory of Notre-Dame on the outskirts of Rouen, where she stayed for the rest of her life.
0: Obviously, we've come to Wallingford today. Where does Wallingford fit into the story, then?
1: Wallingford is an unusual castle, Um, uh, at least as as far as Stephen's reigns, because it's a very powerful castle. Um, In... Stephen's reign or at least the beginning of Stephen's reign it was the possession of one of those coterie of administrative barons who had kept Henry the I's government running so efficiently his name was Brian Fitzcount um, he was the actual son of the uh, one of the counts of Brittany hence Brian Fitzcount Brian son of the count mm-hmm. um, he'd done quite well out of his service to Henry I he was given the heiress of Wallingford uh, as his wife Matilda uh, he was given uh, Matilda as a as a wife. Uh, she was the heiress of, of Wallingford. And he was also given the honour of uh, Abergavenny and the Welsh March as well, you know. Um, so essentially he, was, he had two lordships. And he was one of those administrative barons who, along with the other administrative barons, including Robert of Gloucester, started by accepting Stephen and hoping that, you know, the good times would continue mm. and that Stephen would be the same sort of king to them as Henry I had been. But he was very soon disabused. Uh, and he was one of those barons whose Welsh lordships were attacked as a result of the fact that Stephen didn't do anything about Wales. Okay. So he had that much reason to, to resent uh, to, to resent Stephen. But even when the first outbreak of rebellion happened in eleven thirty eight, he didn't join in.
0: Okay.
1: Um, he stayed loyal for a while. He did not actually uh, Rebel until uh, the empress herself arrived in England, and at that point, one of his colleagues, uh, Miles, Sheriff of Gloucester and Hereford, um, rode over to Wallingford and had a conference with Brian. And at that point, Brian declared for the empress, which, in this case, Certainly in the case of Wallingford, was a risky thing to do because Wallingford was on the outer fringe of Robert of, Glouc- Robert Earl of Gloucester's area of power. And it was always, therefore, going to be the fronti- on the frontier between Stephen's power
4: mm.
1: and uh, Matilda's power. Yeah. And there were two crucial incidents, uh, two crucial periods in the reign when the defence of Wallingford essentially kept Stephen at bay. It disrupted Stephen's control over uh, the central Midlands. You know, it, it commanded a key uh, bridging point of the River Thames. It blocked away from Oxfordshire south, yeah, you know. Uh, and it also gave the, the, the rebels a sort of salient on the uh, east side of the Cotswolds uh, into King Stephen's territory. So it was under essentially constant attack yeah. throughout the reign. Brian Fitzcatt's also a very interesting person in that, you know, he is one of, the, one of the few barons who actually sat down and wrote out why he was supporting okay. Matilda.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, he he got into a row with uh, the Bishop of Winchester, Henry, uh, the brother of King Stephen, um, and uh, actually wrote a letter, which survives, to Henry Bishop Winchester, saying why he was doing the things that he had to do to survive, you know, yeah. plundering merchants and all the rest, and decrying Henry Bishop Winchester for not standing by the oath that he had sworn in 1128. They always went back to that oath. Yeah. You know, the oath that was sworn in 1127, 1128... Um, they always went back to that,
0: even though he had initially
1: even though he had initially gone for Stephen, Stephen yeah. too, yeah. But he, in the end, was true to his oath, yeah, you know, Whereas eventually. Henry was not, and as a result, he was better than Henry. Yeah. It all came down to good faith, and this, that, of course, reflects on what was one of the truisms of medieval aristocratic life that a lot of your reputation be, uh, depended on the fact that you were a loyal man who kept faith, right? You know. And it was always a way of undermining your standing in society if you could be accused of not being a loyal man, of being disloyal.
0: Yeah. yeah. And did Matilda actually ever come here?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, on at least one known occasion, uh, when she escaped the siege of Oxford in 1142, um, which she did by shitting over a wall. Uh, <laughs> doesn't uh, sound very queenly. <laughs> no. Not entirely sure of the details of this. She <laughs> may have come out by... A Boston Gate. It's difficult to know, but anyway, when she when she got out of Oxford Castle, it was snowy, and she was muffled in a white coat, and under the escort of three or five knights, the sources differ. Uh, she was huddled off to Abingdon Abbey, and from Abingdon Abbey, she came here. Yeah,
0: which is not that, that that far, really, is it? It's not
1: that far. Now. No. Yeah, uh, and uh, she was sheltered here before she returned to Devizes, which was her her principal castle and her capital when she was when she uh, when she was contending for the throne.
0: Okay. Um. So, uh, the stalemate, that, so after Matilda went back, um, sort of tail between her legs, mm-hmm. given up her claim, um, what, what sort of happened to, what happened to uh, the monarchy in England then, after that? So Stephen's back on the throne?
1: Stephen is back on the throne, well he's back on the throne after 1141, yeah. and never leaves it again. Um,
0: so they were quite happy to have him back, even though he'd been... The stalemate well.
1: continued, uh, until Robert of Gloucester died, and then something very strange happened. Civil wars, of course, eventually uh, cause, you know, massive emotional and physical exhaustion in, mm. in, the, pop- in the populace. And eventually people realise that there aren't any going to be any winners. No. You know, and that the only way forward is by a settlement. But Stephen wouldn't settle. <laughs> I mean, there were negotiations, I mean, in 1140, for instance. Um, uh, uh, Stephen allowed the delegation headed by his wife, Queen Matilda, yeah. Uh, yeah. to meet uh, with a delegation of the empress, uh, uh, and, and have a face-to-face com- uh, a sort of conference mm. as to how the war could be settled, you know. So this is 1140, it's quite early, early on mm. in the war. Yeah. You know, and there were other conferences, another one in 1146, but it always, it always, you know, uh, sort of collapsed um, because of the intransigence of either party. People were always looking for a way forward, but nothing happened. As long as Robert of Blossom was in charge, nothing ever would happen because military victory was was something that he was always after. They were, right. they, he would never accept any terms. Once he was gone, there still was no settlement in prospect, but the barons, who knew each other very well, I mean, don't forget they'd served at the court of Henry the First. Mm. This, I. mean, this is, a, this is a very small community of barons who. Are, who were behind all this, no more than 500 people. And they know okay. each other very well. Yeah. You know, what's that? That's a sort of large primary school for of yeah. people. You know, they knew everybody, you know. Uh, they knew each other, you know, and they were at war and it was becoming more and more unprofitable that they should be at war and their lands were being devastated, trade was down and, you know, everybody was losing. <laughs> so what you get after Robert of Gloucester dies is suddenly... Angevin earls, supporting Matilda, begin talking to royalist earls. Okay. And they start organising from 1147, 48, 49, private peace treaties to limit the effect of warfare. The principles of the party couldn't make peace, but at least the magnates themselves could limit war. And that is remarkable.
0: Well, they sort of took it out of the hands of of them, didn't they, really? They took it
1: out of the hands, you know. (laughs) But it's remarkable not just for that, it's remarkable for the fact that these barons actually had a sense of the community of the realm which should be a peaceful community Mm. and if the if the king who's the guarantor of peace couldn't guarantee it well they would take control yeah and they were guarantees and that actually is how in the end the war ended finally in 1153 Matilda's bright teenage son arrives in England invited yeah. over by the barons because Wallingford at that point was under close siege and looked as though it was going to fall which might just possibly hand the advantage over to Stephen and Henry responded to the call of the earls of his party, uh, the earls of Cornwall, the earls of Hereford and, and the earls of Gloucester and arrived with a very small army uh, in, in in Dorset marched north to Devizes uh, and then uh, from Devizes marched onwards to Malmesbury, which attacked, and seized the castle makes a great tour of the kingdom in a military chevauchet campaign. doesn't pick up much support, but eventually he circles down and he gets to Wallingford. And finally Stephen manages to gather together a great army. His earls turn out for his summons. Uh, they gather on the other side of the River Thames at Crowmarsh Gifford. The, Henry II uh, arrives, attempts to actually um, attack the, the, the king's army, but the king's a bit too fly for him and drives him back. And at that point, you have two armies facing. Uh, Henry II, as he will be, uh, Henry, Duke of Normandy, as he was then, um, camped uh, on this side of the river. The king camped on the other side. It's the great face-off. Yeah. It's that final battle that Stephen himself really wanted. Mm-hmm. You know? And what happens? The barons on either side tell the duke and the king, we are simply not going to fight. Let's sort this out. You
0: know? So once again, they've taken the power they out of the They take yeah. control.
1: And Stephen and Henry both say they're shocked at this.
0: Well, I'm not entirely sure they might have been. <laughs> you know, no.
1: Because it is so a problem. The barons themselves appoint a commission, mm. to, to, a commission of bishops and a commission of earls, to iron out um, a peace settlement, yeah. which is presented to both Duke and King at Winchester in November 1153. They accept it, then together... They head, to, they head to London and seal a treaty which uh, enshrines these these terms, you know. Yeah. And the war is over. I mean, it's, it, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And the war is ended not by a military victory, but simply by an act of yeah. the entire political community saying, no more, yeah. <laughs> this is it, peace is important, there's a way forward. And the way forward was that, he- that Stephen accepts and adopts um, henry as his heir you know it's slightly easy for him because his own son eustace at this point is uh, has recently died um his own elder son uh, and although it's very tragic for him uh, nonetheless it's more of a blessing for the community because there's no longer going to be that sort of next generation of the struggle between Mm. eustace and and henry um uh, so stephen accepts henry and as i said he's a pleasant man yeah a decent man uh, and he he makes the settlement work Henry decamps from England back to Normandy because he's got more problems in France,
4: uh, and the peace settlement continues. That was Charlotte Hodgman and Professor David Crouch. You can read an article about their visit in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about a famed medieval knight and chatting to the latest biographer of Henry VIII. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, Don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode
3: of this podcast.